Father, I just pray that you would plant your word deep down in us and that you would show us Christ, that your word would go forth and not return void. And I just pray that you would give us clarity and understanding in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it's always encouraging when you begin to read a bit of commentary on the passage of Scripture that you've been asked to preach on. And the author of the commentary begins with, it was unnecessary in the immediately following section of 11, 1 to 18 to repeat so many details. <laughs> it would have sufficed to say at 11, 4, at this, Peter told them all these things exactly as they had happened and proceed at once to 11, 18 and the conclusion of the matter. So with that, I'm simply going to refer to you, Pastor Gibson's message from a couple weeks ago. Cue the video. (laughs) Yeah, oh boy. Yeah, you're in for it this morning. (laughs) But Pastor Gibson has highlighted a couple of times the magnitude of what is actually occurring in these chapters. And this is a significant moment for humanity and for the church. And that's why I think this account is repeated here. So why did Luke record the same details again? Couldn't he simply have done what this commentator suggested and just skip to the conclusion? But the truths here really need to sink in for the disciples, for the early Christians, the religious leaders, and the Gentiles. This is like almost an official declaration for the life of the church. And so I'm afraid that you may hear some of the same repeated. I apologize that you may need to hear again about God and Jesus, and salvation, and people praising God. (laughs) I don't apologize for that. We are in Acts 11 this morning, so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11, we're going to cover the first 18 verses for today. And in the immediate context, we know that Peter has been on a bit of a brief missionary journey. We've seen that he has healed Aeneas in Lydda, he's restored Dorcas to life in Joppa and extended into Caesarea where he testified of Christ to Cornelius and his relatives and close friends. And they have responded in repentance and faith and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the section we're going to look at this morning shows us that he now returns to Jerusalem to provide a report of what has transpired. So let's read these 18 verses as we get underway this morning. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who are throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me and we entered the man's house. 
And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And that's the word of the Lord. So despite there being a lot of similarity in the content between this chapter and the previous one, what I want to set out for us in this passage this morning is just to kind of highlight some of the distinction from chapter 10 and then really to dial down in these last couple verses of this section that focus on God's plan of salvation and its means to participate in it. So we're going to see God's plan of redemption is scrutinized. Secondly, we're going to see God's plan of redemption is explained. And thirdly, God's plan of redemption is embraced. And however, as we will consider some of the details from this passage, I would also like for us to take a bit of a step back and look at the bigger picture of what's going on here. Because as we've already discovered, this is a very significant time in the life of the church, and we need to consider why that is. So let's look briefly at how God's plan of redemption is scrutinized in the opening verses here. And what we quickly discover is that the word had traveled fast. It appears that though the believers in all Judea have already learned of this encounter between Peter, Cornelius, and his household. Now the text doesn't specify how the word traveled, but Peter wants to return to Jerusalem to provide an update on what happened in this missionary journey that he's been on. I mean, Peter has had quite the experience here. He's, had, he's seen God at work. He's had these visions that have altered his understanding of clean and unclean. He has witnessed for at least the second time now the work of the Holy Spirit in action. I mean, he had to be overwhelmed. He had to be overjoyed. Perhaps he's now light on his feet, a bounce in his step. And so when he arrives in Jerusalem, he is met with what the text points out here is the circumcision party or those of the circumcision. It almost feels weighty, right? Commentator Daryl Bach suggests that those of the circumcision must refer to the more conscientious of the Hebrew Christians for most believers at the time were Jews and circumcised. Those so described argue for being careful perhaps overly careful with how the Jews related to Gentiles in terms of purity and diet. So I envision the scene, you know, uh, Peter walks into this room of some sort, he, he looks around and suddenly he stops his happy whistle. Right? Have you ever entered into a room and your gut tells you there was a meeting before the meeting and you weren't invited? And I imagine this is how Peter must have, must have felt. You know, he's kind of met with these arm-folded scowls as he, as he walks into this. Because what we'll see here is, is that matters such as this, this whole, the, the matters of circumcision, Gentiles, dietary laws, 
that this early church is wrestling with, they're going to continue to wrestle with for some time. We're going to see this play out in, in a few chapters here. But you can understand it, but you can't understand it. Understand? <laughs> so what I mean is, Gibson has mentioned briefly about the differences of living under the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. And whereas the people of God under the Old Covenant were bound to numerous social, sacrificial laws, when Jesus died on the cross, he put away with these. Circumcision was a part of the Israelite distinctions before Jesus arrived. It was not to be a requirement for believers under the new covenant, along with all the clean and unclean requirements. But at the, at the least, you can understand how some of these things might take some time to be accustomed to after having dealt with it for so long. But perhaps the bigger issue in the moment is, what? Instead of being filled with joy that the good news of Jesus and salvation continued to go forth and that more people had been added to the number of believers, they were critical of lesser matters. The religious here, they missed the forest for the trees. And sometimes when you are immersed in, in minutiae, you miss the big picture. Oftentimes, you create more minutiae, artificial minutiae, and it distracts you from these greater understandings and the greater purposes at work. And so what we need this morning is a reminder of the forest, the big picture. Those of the circumcision were bound up in minutiae. They took issue that Peter sat and ate with Gentiles that did not uphold the same dietary issues as them. And so therefore, Peter had certainly exposed himself to uncleanness. And God's plan of redemption was criticized. Secondly, let's consider how God's plan of redemption is explained. In verse 4, we read, But Peter began and explained it to them in order. In other words, he says, listen, fine. If you need me to spell it out for you and convince you, this is how it all happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And to be fair, I also have visions of bacon, but I don't think that's what we're getting at here. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered into my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. So it's obvious that Peter is kind of having a difficult time getting his mind around this. The vision happens three times. But we need to remember that Peter has been primed about this already. Do you remember? We read both in Matthew's and Mark's Gospels that Jesus has already taught about this. In Mark 7, we read that, And he, Jesus, called the people to them again, called the people to him again, and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand that there is nothing outside of a person by going into him can defile him but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. Amen. And in a very timely fashion, these men show up at the door and the Spirit of God tells Peter to go with them to the house of Cornelius. And it was then Cornelius kind of recounts his side of the story and how he was told to send for Peter so that, are you ready for this? He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. Peter possesses a message that is powerful unto salvation. It's good news. It's a message of hope. It's a message of life. It is a message of salvation to those who are lost. You see, it was simply not enough that Cornelius may have been a devout man, as we learned in the previous chapter. It was not sufficient that he gave alms to the people and prayed to God. He still needed to hear the message. It is a message of the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus. It is a message that demands a response. Romans 10 tells us, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And here Peter gets to experience the blessing, the privilege of being to communicate a message by which he would be saved. And this is what Peter does. Our passage says, Peter says, as I began to speak the Spirit. And this is precisely how God works. Ray Steadham notes that, notice two things which are emphasized, which are always found together in Scripture, the Word and the Spirit. Both are absolutely essential. There is no salvation without both of these. They are the instruments by which God performs His work. In Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The prophet Isaiah says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, the task of the believer is not... It's actually quite simple. When we pursue making disciples, the task that we are giving is simple. We don't need innovation. We don't need trickery, deception, expert marketing skills. God does the work of salvation. And he does it through us as we declare the gospel. Then the Spirit acts and meets the Word and gives life. They're inseparable. And Peter, he gets to witness this. Can you imagine? As he began to speak, the Spirit changed Cornelius and those of his household. They were brought from death to life. 
They were sealed in the Holy Spirit. They were added to the number of believers in Jesus Christ. What a miracle. The message of the gospel is that though we, have born into, we are born into sin and depravity, though we enter this world spiritually dead and in need of spiritual life, Jesus came to rescue us and to pay our sin debt and give us new life. He bore the penalty of our sin as He hung on a cross. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf and died whispering, it is finished. And yet it was necessary that He not remain in the grave. He also defeated death as He rose from that grave and He paved the way for our resurrection life so that we may have an eternal hope, an eternal destiny with Him. And as we embraced this good news, he brings the spiritually dead to life. Now, many of us have witnessed this transformation in ourselves. We remember what it was like to be a slave to sin, to be antagonistic to God. We remember what it is to have hearts of, of stone removed and be given a heart of flesh, a heart that is tender to the work of God in us. See, we are now inclined by his enabling to love him, to obey him, where previously we could not and desired not. But many of us have also witnessed this occurrence in others. Perhaps as we've shared the gospel, we have seen the light bulb go on. We've seen the miracle as the Spirit of God opens eyes and the hearts of our listeners. We have seen a transformed life in others. And it's all as we are faithful to the task and God does the work through us. We're faithful to the task of proclaiming his gospel. But can you imagine being Peter in these early days? Here he is in the house of a Gentile and he witnesses the work of the Spirit for a second time, first at Pentecost and next at the house of a Gentile. I mean, this is a crucial period in the life of the early church and so God ensured that was going to be evident that he was doing a new thing in the world. And it was in this moment, the text says in verse 16, that Peter remembered the word of the Lord. As he said. That's a beautiful statement in itself. He listened to Jesus, he pondered, and he recalled what he told him. And he remembered how Jesus told him that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he was watching it happen. It was all coming, to all coming to pass. God's plan was happening. And here God's plan of, a, of redemption is explained by Peter to his audience here. And thirdly, I would like for us to consider God's plan of redemption is embraced. And I love Peter's next words here. He says in verse 17, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? I mean, is there a better defense than this? In other words, if, if you've got a problem with this, you're going to have to take it up with him. What was I supposed to do? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Almighty. 
commentator David Peterson says that Peter makes his own example a challenge to his audience. Anyone who stands in the way of the full incorporation of others into the church when they genuinely trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation stands in opposition to God himself. So there's a positive reason for accepting Gentiles who believe that God has given them the same gift of the Spirit. And there's a negative reason. Beware of opposing God's revealed will. Because this here is God's thing. It's God's plan. It's his eternal plan to redeem his people. And it's happening right in front of their eyes. And it was apparently in that moment that his critics got it. Verse 18 says that when they heard these things, they fell silent. Their criticism turned to conviction. Their conviction turns to silence. And the verse continues and tells us that their silence turned into glorifying God. And they utter this most powerful and monumental statement. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That is good news for most of us in this room, particularly See, this is a new thing, but it's not a new thing. I need to explain that. See, it would be easy for us to think that Gentiles had not been a part of God's plan previously, that God always kind of turned away from them. So the Gentiles means those, as Gibson mentioned, I think last week, anybody that's not a Jew. It's literally also translated nations or peoples. It's everyone else. And yet they've always been a part of God's plan. And here, it's, I kind of want us to just take a step back and have a better look at, at a higher elevation, if you will. It's true that for a period of time, God had called forth a nation that is to be his people that were going to represent him to the world. However, you also know that God was worshipped before the nation was established. God had a relationship with men and women that predated the calling forth of Israel. For in the beginning, and you know where I'm going with this, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, and they were created for a relationship with him. The mandate given to them before they sinned was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, thereby creating more worshipers of God across the world. And yet they sinned and ushered all of humanity into this depraved, sinful condition. And when the world had become inundated with evil and God's patience had become overly tested, he chose to save Noah and his family and essentially start over. And as you recall, they received a similar mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fast forward to Abraham. The promise to Abraham is found in chapter 12 of Genesis. And the word of the Lord says, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so we, here we have this promise of the nation that's going to arise from Abraham's descendants. And we recall that it was several generations later, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, exile and slavery into Egypt where God raises up this nation. But even before all of that happened, God's promise to Abraham was not simply to bless the great nation of Israel, because in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 12, 
God said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's already hints of God's higher purposes for his creation, but he's going to use this nation as his instrument, his representative to the world. Bear with me, I know we're getting a lot of details here. Because Israel would be used as a matter of communicating to us, the rest of the world, the character of God, the understanding of sin and separation from him. What was necessary for human beings to understand the remedy of the sinful state? God called the nation of Israel, despite no merit of their own, they weren't special in any other way other than God chose to have favor on them. But they were called to be different than the heathen world. They were to demonstrate their uniqueness in the God that they worshipped, how they lived in holiness, how he would bless them and conquer their enemies. God would show himself to be preeminent in, with, and through the people of Israel. Through the laws given to Israel, they and all the others watching them would understand the blessings, the cursings of obedience and disobedience to the only God. Now here, as I, I begin to wonder why, why God chose one nation, perhaps it would most accurately and effectively communicate his truths in, in a, like a microcosm. Because if God were just to disseminate his truth on a grander scale to all nations, perhaps the uniqueness and distinction would be lost. But God's plan all along was one of blessing for all nations. Because of Israel's witness to God's power and love, Gentiles through the Old Testament were actually drawn to the God of Israel. They came to know God by the testimony of his people and the word he revealed. You, re, you may recall the first recorded Gentile convert to the people of Israel was Rahab the prostitute. She aided the spies and the Israelites when they conquered Jericho. Ruth was a Gentile, was one of God's followers, and she uttered the famous and powerful words, you probably know them, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. I mean, if you think about it, God even sent Jonah to a sinful Gentile city to call them to repent of their sinful ways. Okay, this is more than a history lesson. We're getting, we're getting there. For with the coming of Christ, it's not happening in just these little pieces. It's all happening on a grand scale. Now it is be spiritually fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is the command of the church. Or in the words of Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, all nations, to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As I started looking into this, I, I considered several passages to read through to, to press in on this, but allow me to pass on a couple that have particular specificity for us this morning. 
Because the, the Apostle Paul, he's going to be in the mix of all this in the early church too. And, and he helps kind of put this puzzle together for the church at Ephesus. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, cornerstone in whom this whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. That's a beautiful picture. Joined together, we are a holy temple in the Lord. But let's take this very lofty, philosophical understanding and bring it to Monday morning. Like, let's make this tangible. This is so important for us to recall as Christians because we are all citizens of heaven. And I don't know about you, but I need this grand wisdom because I can get so consumed in, in small details and the struggles of life that I'm prone to forget heavenly realities like this. And it's important for us to remember that no matter how evil, confusing, hypocritical, and maddening things get on this earth, we look forward to a time when we are united with countless others, joining in worship to our Creator, our King, our Redeemer, for all eternity. This is a time, perhaps like no other, where believers everywhere need to anchor themselves in the truths of God's Word. We may have paid lip service to this, this idea for a long time, but at a time when the church is being infiltrated with compromise, with heresy, and the world is being inundated with evil, we will be assailed from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the weapons we possess reside in God's provision alone. And yet we know that this world and this condition will not last forever. Jesus is coming back and he will prepare a new heaven and a new earth for his people to dwell. But until that time, we do the same as Peter. We pray, we act on the prompting of the Spirit of God, and we obey where he leads us. We share the good news of Jesus for the salvation of all nations. Those who receive him by the enabling of the Holy Spirit in repentance and faith. John writes in Revelation chapter 7, he says, After this I looked, 
And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power might be to our God forever and ever. That's our destiny, amen. Father, we thank you for your word and we just thank you how rich and how all-encompassing these great truths for us as your people. What an encouragement to know that you have not forsaken us, though we have sinned against you, we continue to sin against you. And even as we pondered Psalm 89, your steadfast love and your faithfulness to us does not sway. You are our anchor, and we thank you that you have given us such a wonderful promise of hope that as we repent of our sin and turn to faith in you, we anticipate a new heart, new life for all of eternity with you. Not because we are worth it, not because we receive the glory, but that you look good. You are the glorified one. It is a message that just brings so much glory to you. And so we thank you that you have revealed it to us and have given us repentance that leads to life. In Jesus' name, amen.